All right, everyone, it is eight o'clock. So I'm going to ask everyone to uh, mute themselves so we can uh, begin. I mean, uh, Dr. Leader, you're good. Uh, just around the rest of everyone. Um, okay, so uh, welcome everyone. This is a Drisha Spring Program and this uh, Pew Team of Shavuot class. Uh, it is the second uh, Pew Team of Shavuot class this week. We also have another one tomorrow evening. We encourage everyone to turn on your uh, video if you are able. We understand if not. Um, also, please feel free to ask questions uh, or uh, you can comment. Um, I, I guess we decided, yeah, people can unmute uh, to ask questions, right, uh, Dr. Lieber? I think, I think that's fine. Okay, so people can unmute when they have questions. Uh, I think Dr. Lieber will also um, allow uh, specific times for questions. If you're watching us live on Facebook, you can also uh, write your questions as a comment. Uh, in this session, we will examine the liturgical poem, Akdamut Milin, the introduction of words, written by Rabbi Meir Isaac of Worms, with an eye toward understanding its origins and its enduring appeal. Why would Rabbi Meir compose such a lengthy poem in Aramaic, long after Aramaic ceased to be the vernacular of the Jewish community? And what meaning can such a work have for us today? It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Laura Lever. Dr. Lever is professor of religious studies and classical studies at Duke University, where she also directs the Center for Jewish Studies. She received her BA in English and classics from the University of Arkansas, rabbinic ordination from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, and her PhD from the University of Chicago. Her most recent book is Jewish Aramaic Poetry from Antiquity, her trans, uh, translation of classical Sam Samaritan Piyut is forthcoming, and she's currently writing on the topic, topic of theatricality, theatricality, I'm Israeli, forgive me, <laughs> theatricality and late antic uh, hymnody. With that, I'll turn this to Dr. Lieber. Thank you very much for inviting me to give, uh, to share with you a topic about which um, really I don't get into the medieval period very often. And this is a Piut Octomilene, which is really um, entirely medieval. And, uh, um, but it endures. And, uh, and actually I will confess that uh, in putting together a PowerPoint for today, I spent far too much time noodling around in medieval manuscripts because the medieval German Jewry uh, left us so many um, beautifully illuminated machzors and Haggadot and other things, which I think illuminate uh, aspects of this poem as well. And I think perhaps as a text person, I always love pictures. Uh, so not, and not just pictures of manuscripts. I'm going to share a PowerPoint with you just because I think that sort of takes the place of a handout that I might sort of more directly walk you through. And I also want to tell you that I'm happy to send a copy of the PowerPoint to anybody who's interested in, especially I have uh, sources and things on a lot of the images in the notes. Um, so if you're curious where I found that picture. So I also put see. it in the chat right now, the source sheet, just so everyone knows. Yeah, and the source sheet is primarily the, just the text of Akdamut, because it's a very long poem. Uh, and it's also, and I gave a brief bibliography of works that I drew on in this or works that sort of will lead you further down various rabbit holes. Uh, I certainly went down lots of rabbit holes in working on this. So I'm going to 
share my screen. There we go. So, okay. I'm going to, whoops. So, okay, so I'm just going to give just a brief uh, introduction to what the Pute is so that everybody, because uh, it may be more familiar to some than to others. And so it's an extended poetic preface to the first Aliyah um, for the Torah reading on the morning of Shavuot on the first day. And uh, it originally has sort of a complicated history. It used to actually be read, uh, sort of interrupted the Torah reading originally because it was connected to the reading of the Aramaic translation, the Targum of the Torah, which was also read in the synagogue, even in the Middle Ages when Rabbi Meir um, Bar Isaac uh, composed the work, even though Aramaic was not the vernacular of his community, but it held Aramaic in a way sort of like a, like a secondary to Hebrew, had this sort of aura of sanctity about it and uh, as sort of an, a heavenly language. And um, so originally it, it actually interrupted the Torah service eventually uh, in the later Middle Ages, it was uh, moved to just before the first Aliyah. Its author, Rabbi Meir Bar Isaac Nehorai of Orleans was the prayer leader of the Jewish community in Worms. Uh, this is one of the famous sort of cities of Shum, the Shfire Mines in Worms, uh, which was a heartland really sort of Jews in Ashkenaz in the Rhineland. Rabbi Meir died in 1095, just prior to the massacres of the First Crusade, uh, that, which um, Gezero uh, Tatnu, the decrees of um, 4856. So which left a tremendous scar on the psyche uh, and, and as well as on many bodies of Jews in Ashkenaz. And this connection of the city of Worms to the First Crusade is deeply connected to the folktale that appears in Yiddish, which I'll talk about briefly, uh, which was uh, widely circulated. It arose generations after the composition of Akhtamut, but it gives this very powerful and moving folktale folk background to the Pute, which uh, is certainly uh, part of the reason, quite possibly, why it persisted, despite the fact that um, its language is very difficult and it's uh, probably not necessarily the meaningfulness of the words that was uh, so powerful for people. And one of the things I'm going to sort of point out as we sort of uh, survey the lay of the land of Akhtamut and its origins is that in many ways, this sort of combination of the poem and this legend is very Ashkenazi. It, it participates a lot in what will also become very important for Hasidic Ashkenaz. But, um, but it's not an exclusively Ashkenazi impulse. So. The poem is quite long. That may be one of the things that most people know about it, <laughs> 90 lines long. So if you're one of those um, people like I have occasionally been who sort of like flips through the prayer book to see how much longer we have before a certain break, uh, Akhtamut uh, can be intimidating. It's a double alphabetical acrostic for the first half. So it goes Aleph, Aleph, Bet, Bet, Gimel, Gimel, followed by 46 verses that embed a signature acrostic, which is a very classical feature of this sort of medieval 
poem which uh, Rabbi uh, Meir Bar Isaac, may he be great in Torah and in good deeds, amen, chazak ba'amatz. So every line of this poem is 10 syllables. And the final syllable of each line, which is easy to do in Aramaic, is ta. Now tav and aleph signify the endless cycle of Torah learning. As soon as you are finished, back to the beginning. It's sort of the opposite of one might say through alpha and omega, it's omega and alpha. Um, and this actually leads to their, their resonances between Akdam Milin and uh, Simchat Torah, and also signifies perhaps sort of the ongoing nature of revelation. For those of you who looked at the text in advance and were like, oh my goodness, do not feel alone. The uh, language is infamously opaque. The art scroll Shavuos Maxor calls it terse, difficult Aramaic. Uh, and uh, Galinkin, in a response to where he suggests actually replacing Akdamut with uh, selections from Psalm 119, refers to it as a unique Aramaic of the 11th century, so difficult that even rabbinic scholars may have problems deciphering it. <coughs> there are various musical settings of the work. There's sort of an, a, a Misainai melody, uh, which is very similar You'll, if you hear it to the festival Kiddush. There's a, what's called a psalmic or psalmodic chant that resembles the Chatan Toran, Chatan Bereshit melody from Simchat Torah. And there's an old sort of German folk melody, which has largely fallen out of use, um, but it was attested. And the other thing that's interesting is that there's also the uh, antiphonal nature of its uh, performance. So it's participatory. And actually in some ways, um, especially for this period in the, the, the sort of high middle ages of Piute, one of the most important aspects I think of what makes a, a, a Piute popular can be the experiential and the sound and participatory elements and the words could be far less meaningful. I sometimes think of this as the, um, you know, they're sort of like, they're like, there's a, uh, a don alam and other works, which, you know, which we all sort of like, you don't even think about really what the words that you're saying so much as the, that you get caught up in the melody and the experience of being with other people singing it. Um, so lechadodi is another one. I don't think everyone is contemplating the various um, tikkunim of sfirot that they're participating in when they're singing along. They're often just sort of enjoying the more uh, sort of contextual elements, the ambiance of participating in such a song. Yaakov Emden uh, is the one who um, referred to Akdam, which is estimable, precious in my eyes. He's also one who said it should not interrupt the Torah, the Torah reading. And uh, just a quick Google. So Reb Google says, I, I found these sort of interesting, uh, beloved and bizarre, perhaps my favorite, a uh, favorite of European congregations um, that could be inflected in different ways to reflect different kinds of judgment. Uh, Judaism's best known and most beloved piyut. Some might quibble with that. A masterpiece. However, uh, we also have here the opinion of I've pulled out Elbogen, uh, whose famous work, uh, Jewish Liturgy, a Comprehensive History, uh, said these poems uh, were. Um, so let's see, oops, my, my little screen is blocking my word. Were never intelligible, but now with the elimination of the Aramaic translation that they were intended to introduce, they have completely lost their significance and their right to exist. Uh, that's pretty harsh, although Elbogen uh, never pulls punches. Marcus Adler, when he cut it from the official British liturgy, referred to it simply as expendable. 
even now, uh, many prayer books, uh, may, they may publish the, the Aramaic, but uh, paraphrase in the English or offer an alternative or just skip it entirely. I know growing up in a congregation that really lived in, lived by the academic calendar, Shavuos didn't always even make it into the calendar rotation um, when the rabbis were around. Uh, Go Lincoln in his responsum writes, the pious generations of the past recited Akhtamut because it was there, it was there in the prayer book and you ask no questions. Today, people wanna know what they are doing and why. So uh, now uh, Akhtamut needs uh, some good PR. So I just wanted to, because it's like I said, it's 90 lines long, um, 45 stanzas, uh, give a sort of a quick overview because it's not chaotically organized. That would be fairly unbearable. Uh, so it has a clear kind of outline. It articulates the challenge of trying to praise God, uh, sort of a poetic conceit. Then it um, moves to creation, a description of the angelic hosts and the heavenly liturgy, which ties in very nicely sort of with, you know, if you think about the Haftarah for the first day of Shavuot with Ezekiel 1 and 312, so the Kedushah. Then it, de it depicts the prayers of Israel as being superior. Once we're in the human realm and the nations enter the stage and the nations express wonder and delight and try to essentially seduce Israel to join them. Israel spurns their advances and we have what really can be considered a wedding feast uh, that God hosts for Israel, um, including a, a, a reference to the battle of behemoth and Leviathan, uh, who become the meat course and the fish course for the banquet of the righteous. And then it concludes with a benediction and petition. And on this other page, the, the, the illustration is of, um, I couldn't find a date on this manuscript, but I wanted to show it because you can see how the manuscript lays out the formal aspects of the poem in that in red letters in the, on the right-hand margin, you have the letters, it's the, it's the very end of Yigdal Batorah. Um, so Yigdal Batorah, Ma'asim Tovim, and then the ta-ta-ta-ta final syllable of each line at the end. So that really emphasizes the form over sort of the, uh, the, sort of the content of the work in a way the form itself is very important. There is a long tradition of Aramaic poetry. This I can speak about um, from my previous book. There's a number of poetic editions that are often preserved in Targum manuscripts. And so, especially for Shabbat Shirah, this parting of the sea and the death of Moses, those are two very popular. So the, in a way, sort of like this middle point of the Torah and the, the end of the Torah. Akdamut replaced an older, shorter Aramaic piyut, uh, which offered a very dramatic mythic vision of the moment of revelation has Moses battling the angels to acquire the Torah. I actually, it's a poem I'm quite fond of, but, uh, but Akhtamut Milin uh, replaced it. And that's interesting to think about why. The earliest text of Akhtamut we have is really quite early, 1279. And it's first mentioned as being a part of the Shavuot liturgy in the 15th century in halakhic literature and appears in uh, sort of a prayer book as we would think of it in the 16th century. So, and the original setting, as I've mentioned, after the first verse of the Torah reading became a problem once it stopped being an introduction to, once it, once it stopped being a Targum, an Aramaic translation to introduce. 
So I'm going to, if I'm not missing any questions, I have trouble, I can't see, um, but I'll just sort of, no I questions. just, okay. I am. There is actually one question. Uh, what is the name of the other poem about Moshe battling the angels? Um, uh, I, I can't think of it right now. It's in my, it's, it's one of the ones I treat in my book, uh, but it's a marvelous, it's a short one. It's an alphabetical acrostic, it's 22 lines. Um, I wanna say Arkeen Moshe, I think is what, yes. And uh, Moses uh, uses his horns because God has given him horns and he uses them like a, and the angels complain that he's like a goring ox. It's really quite dramatic. Um, so, uh, but not as sort of, not, not quite as dignified as, as Akhtamut Milim. So in terms of going through this here, we have another uh, manuscript page of Akhtamut Milim. This is from the, um, the Wormsmachsor, which is interesting because actually Worms was not, was a place where it was not always traditionally said. And um, you can see sort of the red letters appear to indicate sort of like the grouping it into stanzas for participation or something. This is a cantor's personal uh, uh, mafsor, presumably. And it also this worm's mafsor contains the earliest known text of Yiddish uh, on a different page. So here we have just some beautiful poetic uh, descriptions about how how impossible it is to, to describe sort of God's wondrous majesty. And essentially it's a poetic conceit where, where the poet says it's impossible to do it, so I'm gonna try. Uh, but I do think that the, this language has been quite evocative and has uh, become sort of had influence. And you know, like where the sky's parchment and all the reed quills, where all the seas and waters made of ink. Um, so was every person a scribe. That, that, that idea that even if that were all true, it would not be possible to praise, um, to state God's uh, true majesty and wonder. So this in a way, it's very similar to what we see in like um, the um, Shiri Hud and other sort of texts that we associate with the Ashkenazi uh, liturgical tradition from a little bit later. So like the Hasidic Ashkenaz. We have sort of like, after, I'm sort of skipped over some of the creation story and the angelology, uh, which is, I mean, the angelic liturgy is very interesting. The angelic liturgy, it's, the, it's phrases that we would know from the Kiddushah uh, in the contemporary sort of, you know, what becomes you know, sort of the statutory prayers. So holy, holy, holy. And um, uh, so, and then Ezekiel 312. Uh, and then there's a, there's a whole, whole sort of assertion that the angelic prayer is nice, but what God really loves are the prayers of Israel. And um, and as I mentioned, this you know, sort of this praise of Israel leads to sort of a sense that the nations uh, begin to sort of like take notice of the Israelites, the Jews, and they, the nations, uh, come and gather together like the surging waves. Uh, and this again is sort of echoing what we see uh, in like Parshat Yitro uh, in the in the Torah reading. You know, sort of the fact that the idea that the nations have heard about what God has done for Israel and how much God loves Israel. And then we have this Wenson, who is your beloved, O fair one, uh, for whom do you die in the lion's den? And this petition, you know, mingle with us. Um, we will do your will throughout the world. And then the poet speaking sort of as Israel personified says, with wisdom, with wisdom, I answer them concisely. And I give them a stiff arm. 
And this, I think, uh, when you read it, it begins to resemble, uh, it sounds a lot like the, the, the passage in the Mechilta, like a much earlier Midrash from the Panitic Midrash from the second century with Rabbi Akiva uh, explicating the Song of the Sea. <coughs> Exodus 15, Zei Levan Behu, this is my God and I will glorify him. And then the nations sort of say, oh, you know, like, you know, the first they say, what's your God that you die for him all the time? And then uh, Akiva says, I'll tell you a little bit about him. And they're like, oh, let us join with you. And Akiva says, no, Anila Dodi, Dodi Lee, I am my beloved. And my beloved is mine. We're exclusive. Uh, read it. So this is sort of a similar, uh, sort, of, uh, <laughs> sort of an aggressive courtship that uh, Israel rejects. And one, line of thinking is that this actually the sort of this push and pull of the nations and the tell me about your God and mingle with us and things that it there's it makes sort of reflects if nothing else or I think the engagements of various kinds possibly sort of with the non-Jews the Jews and Christians were not living sort of hermetically sealed away from each other but were engaging with each other and so here we have um, pictures of you know sort of various kinds of disputations and arguments um, and that sort of this poem reflects that sort of give and take with the non-Jews over claims to God's love and, uh, and, and also sort of the implicit idea of power. We'll do your will throughout all the world. You know, the idea that, that uh, Israel right now has no power, so earthly power and heavenly power. And then after Israel has declared herself uh, sort of exclusive with God, then we move to what is really essentially a description of a, a banquet that functions in some ways as a wedding reception. And there's lots of uh, genune and sort of various uh, terms here which are suggestive in various ways of sort of marriage rituals. So he shall cover them with his glory, a canopy for that nation to adorn with praises as God setting up the banquet, setting up the reception, um, chairs and seven levels on setting out the banquet for the righteous and, um, and then the righteous will dance in a circle with the Shekhinah. So I would commend to you the uh, article that I mentioned that's in the bibliography by Jeffrey Hoffman. He does a very nice translation of the all of Akdamut with lots of uh, careful footnotes that are uh, for some, a lot of the intertextual references here. It's very hard to uh, translate a poem without just filling it up with footnotes. And he has some nice, I've sort of used, uh, done some of my sort of adapted my translation and his translation and the, uh, the translation from Safaria. And so there's uh, no single translation can capture all that's going on in this work, but uh, Hoffman's article is marvelous. And then we have, because you can't have a banquet without eating, we have the mythical main courses. Uh, it's a very briefly told contest between Leviathan and Behemoth, which is an old sort of motif uh, that come, it comes out of the book of the end of the book of Job, where you have um, Behemoth and Leviathan, uh, come, you know, sort of this primordial beast, sort of the Leviathan is the primordial sea creature, Behemoth is the sort of ultimate land animal. Uh, in medieval artwork, you also often find Zs, the bird, the, 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 the rock, it's like the rock of Greek mythology. And, but the ox and so Behemoth and Leviathan uh, fight each other. 
and there's a, this appears in Lamentations Rabba. Uh, it appears in a, in a late antique poem by Kalir. Uh, in, the, in the Lamentations Rabba version, uh, Leviathan and Behemoth slaughter each other in a kosher manner. Uh, and more, more often, uh, God enters and takes care of the shechting of the creatures so that they may be served properly to the righteous. In the earlier, in the late antique uh, traditions, these are always framed in terms of those who avoided going to the violent games of the Roman arena are rewarded by this spectacle that is far superior to anything that the Romans ever put on. Here, this is just um, part of the spectacle that the righteous will uh, behold. And here we have uh, from, again, a little bit after Rabbi Meir, uh, some images from the Ambrosiana Bible, where you can see uh, these are actually, these pages are actually on top of each other, but I split them up so they can be a little bigger on the slide. And you see, here you see Behemoth and Leviathan and disease, so this griffin-like creature representing the three realms of creation. And then the other panel uh, is the Banquet of the Righteous, where they're eating all these things in their musical instruments. And they all have various sorts of animal heads. Uh, so in crowns. And so that's the banquet of the righteous where they eat Leviathan and Behemoth. So I'll pause now for any other questions that you may have. And I can be a little hypnotized by that book flipping image. <laughs> feel free to unmute, or if you feel more comfortable, you can raise your hand uh, using the raise hand uh, button on Zoom if you'd like to ask a question now. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be more time for questions afterwards if anyone just sort of trying to get their thoughts together. Seems like we're good for now. Okay. So. I'm going to outline for here, you here the, um, the Misa Optimus, the, uh, the, this is the legend that uh, Hoffman's article focuses on. He does obviously a much more thorough treatment, but I'm going to highlight some of the pieces that I'm particularly interested in here from the story. So this, the, the story uh, is that in 1361, a monk sorcerer begins to attack and kill Jews throughout the Rhineland. And he eventually gives the Jews one year to produce a champion who can defeat him in a sorcery contest. Uh, so there's an excellent folkloric uh, setup. The Jews fast, send out letters seeking a champion and practice Shuvat, Filah, and Tzedakah. So there should be, I think you should be hearing here echoes of both the book of Esther and the, um, the uh, high holiday poem, Lunatanatoka, uh, but to no avail. Eventually, as the year is passing, time through an hourglass, uh, the, an elder learns in a dream that the rescuer must come from one of the lost tribes beyond the river Sambatya. So Rabbi Meir, the author of our poem, goes as an emissary, taking very literally the term Shaliyah Sibur, um, but he has to cross the river Sambatya on Shabbat, which is forbidden. He does so because of Pikuach Nefesh to save the Jews of his community. The Jews of the lost tribes consult and they eventually choose among themselves a champion to send back to Worms, uh, who happens to be feeble, old, bent, very unimpressive specimen of a human being. 
that everyone is very concerned about, but obviously this is sort of a, a ploy that will help lower the expectations of the evil wizard. And so this champion will go back um, to Worms, but Rabbi Meir can never return. So he, he, never, he never goes back to his homeland. And um, the champion uh, defeats the evil monk on Erev Shavuot, which happens to be the, day, the last day that they had before their time ran out. And after his victory in the sorcery contest, he reveals that Rabbi, he reveals to the Jews that Rabbi Meir composed a poem, Akhtamut, and taught it to him before he boarded the boat to cross the river Sambatian and go back to Germany. And, and that Rabbi Meir asked the Jews of his community recite this poem every year on Shavuot. So there are a couple of things in this Misa, this, this story that I that I'm there are threads I'm pulling on. And the first one is on dreams and poetry. Because as I mentioned, that um, the resonances of some of the story with Unatana Tokef, I think Unatana Tokef is perhaps the most famous, in my experience, folk tale about folk, folkloric backstory for a Piut. Because that is the story of Rabbi Abnon of Mainz, Mainz being one of the other cities of Shum. There's Shire of Mainz and Burms. So Akhdamut comes from Burms and Amnon is from Mainz. And Amnon is martyred because he refuses to convert to Christianity. And actually in a motif that is attested in uh, Christian martyrology as well, he, he is uh, brutally sort of mutilated and uh, all of his limbs are cut off and he's eventually carried dying into the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah where he sings Unatana Tokaf and then expires. Or in some versions of the story, he is just taken up to heaven apparently. There's a lot of uh, influence I think here of sort of the Christian narratives. Three days after his death or disappearance, Amnon appears to his student, Rabbi Kalanimus Barmashulam. Kalanimus Barmashulam does die in the first crusade, but he appears, but the, Amnon appears to his student in a dream and asks him to transcribe the poem and ensure that it's recited every year in Rosh Hashanah. <coughs> Kalanimus Barmashulam is of the Kalanamide family, which is very important in the history of Ashkenazi Jewry, Jewry especially, they were credited with bringing the traditions, the mysteries and secrets of prayer from the land of Israel up through Italy and into the Rhineland. The legend of Rabbi Amnon is first told by Rabbi Isaac Orzerua in the 13th century in Germany, who attributes it to Ephraim of Bonn. And Ephraim of Bonn, if you've ever read The Last Trial by Shalom Spiegel, Ephraim Afan wrote that poem that's the subject of that book. What's interesting about this folk tale is that Unatana Tokov is obviously definitively much older than this uh, medieval ideology, in that we have a Geniza text that dates the eighth century, and based on its style, it's likely composed in the sixth. So it's a similar sort of folklore backstory for a for a poem that was already in use, uh, but in this case, an even older poem than Akhtamut Milin. So here I just sort of am thinking um, that we have sort of these two, these two rabbis who are, as we would say, from away, 
So Rabbi Meir Borleani, Philonymus, who's from this German, uh, from this Italian family, uh, they have come to they've come to the Rhineland uh, presumably because it's the intellectual seat of Ashkenazi Jewry, like Rashi. And uh, both rabbis, I mean, Rabbi Kalanis died in 1096, Rabbi Meir died in 1095, and they both uh, were associated with communities that were ravaged by the Crusades. Each poem is revealed in proximity to a holiday, Shavuos or Rosh Hashanah. And in some fashion, each author is sort of dies for a cause, you know, the martyr. Uh, Rabbi Meir joins the lost tribes and becomes lost to his people, according to this tradition. Rabbi Amnon, who was probably not actually really a person, but he is explicitly martyred in the folk tale. And Rabbi Kalanimus was part of a mass suicide uh, when confronted by the Crusades. And even the champion uh, who came from beyond the Sambatian is, uh, never gets to return to his people. So there's a sense of sort of death and dislocation uh, and migration sort of the, in the folk tales that accompanied these two poems, Unatanatoka and Akhtamutmilin. The other little rabbit hole I went down, which I wanted to share with you just because it was intriguing, um, is this Sambatian River, which appears, uh, it's actually, uh, Pliny the Elder mentions it as a river in Judea that dries up every Shabbat. Uh, so it's named um, Sabatian. Josephus writes of it, uh, that it, uh, his account, it was dry for six days and only flowed on Shabbat. It appears that uh, Rabbi Meir encountered the one of Pliny because he had to cross when it was not, uh, when it had to cross on Shabbat. So also in rabbinic writings, we have references to it in Targum Pseudo-Jonathan and in Bereshit Rabbah. It's unnavigable on weekdays because it flowed with strong currents carrying along stones with tremendous force, but it rested on Shabbat. And this really, I mean, I think sort of echoes ideas from, you know, if we think about the Christian stories of Prester John and the kingdom of the Khazars, this idea that somewhere beyond sort of the known world is this uh, realm where in this case, the 10 lost tribes are there, which is why the champion comes from the tribe of Dan. What surprised me was I had not actually known that, uh, that Christians also uh, believe that their 10 lost tribes live beyond the rivers and Batian. Uh, but to Christians, and this is a distinctly German tradition, uh, they, they were wicked, mighty Jews who posed a threat to Christendom as they would invade Europe during the tribulations of the end of days. And they're known as the Red Jews, the Rote Juden, the Rote Yidle. <laughs> so a story of uh, the Jews found empowering was shared with Christians who found the story uh, scary. And so this is actually a church window and you can see the Jews and their little Jew hats, uh, uh, the Judenhut. Uh, so it's a window from St. Mary's church and um, they're beyond the river. And the whole sort of idea of them being red is apparently because in, the, in Christian traditions they're connected to Edom and Gog and Magog and Edom, Adom, red. So um, there's a lot, uh, there's a, I have a, at least one article in the, your bibliography on this motif, which doesn't have a whole lot to do with Akhtamutmilin, but between this picture and the way it suggests the common interplay between the Jews and Christians in the Rhineland, I found uh, too interesting to not share with you. Okay, back to Akhtamut. <coughs> this is a much uh, more modern than 19th century 
uh, Polish uh, woodcut of Leviathan and Behemoth. But that's, that's a, just to uh, illustrate the long duration of this motif. So what I would say is we have for us over here two impulses. There's sort of the impulse to mourn and the impulse to hope, uh, which I think help explain sort of the persistence of Akhtamut uh, in that legend, as Hoffman argues, I think very persuasively in his article had a big impact on how this hymn is understood, uh, reflects the impulses among the Jews of the Rhineland to both grieve and to persist because it gives it this mythical uh, and yet uh, uh, precarious sense of the moment of Ashkenazi Jewry, sort of it's a mythical and yet it does resonate with the sense that there were evil forces out to get the Jews, but the Jews would uh, endure. So by giving Rabbi Meir a story that is both a victory and a tragedy, he, the Jews are saved, but Rabbi Meir is lost. The Yiddish legend integrates the Jews of the Rhineland into a much larger and more powerful Jewish polity. And here I think it is that connection with these red Jews beyond the Sambatian River in a way that's sort of similar to the yearning for whether it was Christians looking for Prester John or Jews uh, seeking to connect with the Khazars. This idea that, that there are, that you have friends who are powerful, but just far away, but who might still come to your rescue. Akhtamut thus also becomes a hymn of resistance. Its power is amplified by this backstory of tragedy and courage. But as, as entertaining and evocative as I find this folktale, I still found myself wondering why Rabbi Meir wrote it. Because Rabbi Meir died in 1095, so before the First Crusade, and the legend uh, postdates him, and uh, if we assume it is legendary, then there was some reason that the poem itself merited this folktale, if, if you want to think of it that way. So what about this poem evoked the, um, this, this interesting a backstory in the first place? And so here, I would say that this is not a martyrological poem. It is not a poem that is about death, but it is about love and triumph. And that's why I highlighted all the sort of the superiority of Israel and the wedding banquet imagery from the poem uh, earlier. And here it's the fact that I think also the Shavuot is connected to Passover and Sha Passover, it's the Song of Songs. And I think, I think of this as being sort of the Song of Songs and Passover becomes sort of the elopement of God in Israel. They flee Israel, they run away from mom and dad to be together. Uh, in the wilderness. Um, it's passionate, erotic, hectic, and the focus is really very much on God and Israel at that moment. Shavuot, Megillah Ruth, is really far more tranquil and in a way sort of adult, mature, I don't know. Uh, it's about commitment, marriage, covenant. Uh, Ruth when she goes to the threshing room floor, takes great risk, um, but for the cause, not just of herself, but of Naomi and her husband's familial line and the salvation of her, you know, sort of the endurance of her people. And it's also, but it still has that sort of version of, of, of eroticism and the consummation. It also, the, um, the poem itself reminds me of, as I said, Mechilta Shirta, Anze Eliv Anbehu, 
and this tradition of using the Song of Songs and this, its language of exclusivity as a way of resisting Rome, which really uh, uh, comes to be understood as sort of all of Christendom. And so if Exodus is the elopement, then Sinai is the wedding. And we see in this poem that the clouds are described in the form as like a chuppah. The Torah in this and various other traditions becomes a ketubah. There's the motif of wedding crowns, kilim, and the motif of circle, circle dancing. The end time banquet becomes a wedding feast. And so I'd say sort of that the motifs in Akhtamut Milin of mutuality, reciprocity and exclusiveness where God chooses Israel and Israel chooses God. Uh, the, the, the delight that they take in each other to the exclusion of those who would try to horn their way in is uh, truly important and is part of, I think, the reason why this poem had such an appeal. And I think it's part of why it had more appeal than Archie Moshe, which for all of its drama and its fun, doesn't have sort of the theological depth of this product of Ashkenaz. And um, so Shavuot, in a way, becomes the renewal of vows for God and Israel. Every year, it's their anniversary. And this impulse, as I mentioned the other, the Akimut Milin is a very Ashkenazi poem. But in Sephardic Judaism, we see something very similar um, that most uh, sort of concrete example is the Shavuot Ketubah, uh, which is a poem written by Israel Najara who in the same way that the Ashkenazi poetry was uh, transformed really by the experience of the persecutions of the Crusades, Israel Najara is from the, you know, a couple generations after the expulsion from Spain, he's writing in spots. And he wrote this Shavuot Ketubah, which uses the language of a, of a Jewish marriage contract, but uh, it's a marriage contract between God and Israel. And so here we have one from Italy in the 17th or 18th century, you see Moses and Aaron are the two, <laughs> the two witnesses. And I think you know, sort of this idea is sort of like a response to, um, to persecution, trauma, you know, that rather than sort of giving up, it actually causes people to uh, double, sort of double down and, and, and uh, renew their commitments. So, um, and here we have another uh, Shavuot Ketubah with a text by Israel Najara which I just had to include the catalog copy from JTS uh, just because, you know, it has, you know, it has, you know, sort of the um, ketubah for Shavuot and a Moses witness, Aaron witness. <laughs> so, um, and the kinds of things that are promised in the dowry or a heart that will understand ears that hearken eyes that see. You get, um, so these are the sorts of things that are promised in the ketubah. Uh, but so these, this is sort of a similar, I would say sort of, impulse to use Shavuot as this form of uh, renewal of vows between God and Israel. Uh, it's even more concrete in the Sephardic tradition, uh, but Akhmut Milin, I think, reflects something similar. So here we have, this is the actual panel from that, um, the Ambrosiana Bible, where you have uh, Behemoth, Ziz, and Leviathan, and then the banquet down below. So which is also creation and end times. I think there's sort of there's it's the end piece, the end illustration of the Bible. I think it connects the end of the, the um, creation story as with the rewards of the righteous yet to come. And then this is uh, from another medieval German uh, Bible. We have the 
uh, revelation of the Torah here, Moses taking the, the, the two tablets. And down, down below we have the scene from Ruth, which uh, is the Hebrew word under there, but just that scene of the harvest connecting um, the two. Here, I guess this is, this is another one of those illustrations that I just found myself uh, pondering. This is the, mo this is the uh, uh, manuscript, has the, it's the wedding of Moses and Zipporah. Uh, so that's Zipporah, apparently her mother, the rabbi raising a really large Kiddush cup, uh, musician uh, entertaining the couple. And what I wanted to uh, point out here was the fact that you know, we have here, he's putting, Moses is extending the wedding ring to her, to Tzipporah, to put on her finger. It's a very long finger, makes it easy. But just the, the way the crown and there's sort of the, the belt buckle, the clasp, um, the ring, the, the prominence really of the circles, which I actually would connect with the ta, the sort of the circular nature of that syllable that ends every single line of Akhtamilin, the fact that you come full circle, you go from top to olive, top to olive, top to olive, the way that circling is such an important part of the Jewish wedding. Obviously we even have the custom of the bride circling the groom or the two circling each other now. Um, but just this is connected. Uh, this, the article that's associated with this is a, there's a, it's on the treasure, the Jewish treasures from Erfurt. Uh, but just the beautiful, sort of the, the depiction of the woman's wedding garb is I think especially appealing here. And then we have other images of weddings. Um, I would just, this one, the, these are all from Passover, uh, source where there's still the Ikimil Vanon is a, is a poem. And just to highlight for you this one, uh, here the ET with the, you have there, the bride is actually crowned and blindfolded. So this is actually a Jewish manuscript evoking the imagery of the synagogue from Christian art where synagogue is always blindfolded because the Jews can't see the truth of Christianity. Um, and whereas Ecclesia is crowned and triumphant. So here we see sort of Jews subverting, a Jewish illustrator subverting that motif. And here we have her lover, who in some fashion represents the, the divinity, you know, by wearing his little Jew hat and um, courting Israel. So sort of like courtly love and God in Israel and a fascinating um, intermingling of Jewish and Christian conventions in this visual piece, uh, embellishing a pute for Passover. I don't have, we don't have time. I want you to have this link. Um, it's from last year of the global cantors. Uh, so the cantors of the conservative movement uh, performing uh, Akhtamut. It's beautiful. It's to the tune that um, the, the Misainai melody, which will sound a lot like a festival kiddush. It's on YouTube, but it takes 14 minutes long. Uh, but anyway, it's a, um, you should save it and watch it later. And uh, the sad thing is, of course, in the, in the, the introduction, they say that they're doing it last year and they're hoping it's the last time that we'll be socially distanced for the holidays. I think that there's a good chance they were probably not quite there yet. So we still have this for another year. And at the first and at the end, Full circle, time for questions. So that's a quotation from the final stanza of Akhtamut Milin. But I'm going to stop I have sharing. A question. Other than the whole dispute as to whether it should be before the bracha of the Torah or after, was there rabbinic opposition to the piyut 
in its entirety because of its content or was it more or less accepted? The content was not uh, a problem. I think it was, um, I mean, in some ways it's less, it's probably sort of less theologically provocative than um, like, you know, Shir Yichud, Anim um, I think Iso, and it's, it's by the time period where these Pew team were a convention, were sort of normal. So I think it's not like in late antiquity where the poetry, the, the poems themselves were including them in the liturgy at all was controversial. So that's why I think you know, Yaakov Emden, when he's arguing in the 18th century that we need to move where it occurs, he's still sort of very careful to say that it's a beautiful, important poem. We have to sort of um, keep it, but we just need to you know, put it in a slightly more appropriate location. Um, can I ask a question here? Uh, so you say that it was wildly popular, but no one understood it. So that's, I don't, how does that happen? <laughs> I think, I, in general, I think this is where I say the, um, the, with music, and I think that's part of the, we don't know sort of how it was sung. You know, we have these different you know, sort of traditions of melodies that accompanied it. But I think that there were clearly, I think, number one, we could imagine that there were sort of paraphrases of it were giving. I mean, it could have been introduced in some way that people would have known roughly what they were singing about. I think the melody itself was part of its appeal. I think the participatory nature was sort of like done in this sort of antiphonally. That, um, that that those sorts of that parts of the ambiance of it. And it, you know, I mean, it may be that I think you don't get every word, but you get some words and the words that you're getting are, I mean, they're, you know, they're parts of them, that, you know, they're no, um, there really aren't any dark spots in the hymn. So I think, you know, it's not like you're sort of gonna catch, uh, it's not like the martyrologies where you understand them and they're sad. This is sort of, I think the words that you're catching are sort of uplifting. So I think, um, I mean, in a way sort of like it's a, it's a, the problem with its lack of whether or not they understood it or not, that's really a more sort of, I think it was more our problem than their problem. Because <laughs> uh, we have, it's up to us to try to think about maybe what are we missing? Um, you know, also, I mean, the fact that our aesthetics changed, you know, I think sometimes, you know, what they considered in various other periods good good literature and I'm saying that I, I, I always remember when I started working in the late antique pew team but also I did some medieval material that one of my teachers said you know when are you going to work on good poetry you know he was someone who worked in the Andalusian poets and, you know why would you study this stuff when you could study Yehuda Halevi and I think you know it's just well you know yeah I this is the kind of poetry that Abraham and Ezra couldn't stand Abraham and Ezra couldn't stand this kind of elaborate poetry where the form was as important as the content. Um, but the Ashkenazi Jews uh, had a different aesthetic from the Sephardic Jews. In line 80, there is Aristotle um, And in the early Birnbaum, he has a note that that is a vague reference to Aristotle and was actually controversial. 
that's removed subsequently. And I, I wonder, do you think that this Ariston is a double entendre or, uh, you know, is that, uh, uh, is that popular etymology? I mean, I, <laughs> it's hard to imagine that, I mean, I, I, my, my instinct just shooting from the hip would be that that's a popular etymology. And that I don't think, I think the Jews of Ashkenaz had other, <laughs> I don't know about the status of Aristotle in, in Ashkenaz at that point. That's really sort of just beyond where I really sort of uh, want to uh, make a statement on this. I mean, there are different manuscript editions of this text. And one of the things that's interesting is there are number, any number of translations and things. You know, I think if you go on the web and you just sort of like, you know, like the, what's interesting is sort of in terms of the form and function content is that there are, I think it's the new conservative Mahsor that lays out that has a traditional Aramaic, but does sort of responsive readings drawn from biblical texts and things to sort of like, it's sort of like a riff on the theme and it sort of like preserves the antiphonal elements and other things, you know, sort of an attempt to sort of like translate the less textual parts of Akhtamut into a contemporary American aesthetic, which I find interesting. Hmm. So, um, so Kaya. Kaya Juni has been waiting for a while, so I'll just stop. Yeah. So go ahead, Kaya. Thank you. Thank you. I have a couple of short questions. Um, the first one is just a clarifying question about the, the Red Jews. I didn't understand. Are they supposed to be the 10 Lost Tribes or are they the Khazars? Or are they some sort of conflation of those two? They're the 10 Lost Tribes. It's okay. just a sorry, similar you, idea of sort of these. Oh, sorry. I thought you mentioned the um, Secondly, I was really fascinated by the um, the Maisa Um, Is it written anywhere? Like, is it just something that's like passed from mouth to mouth, or is there like a canonical text? So yeah, it's um, trying to see where I have. So. Yeah, the, the tale, it appears in Yiddish. I'm thinking uh, Hoffman has sort of a whole marvelous uh, description of how it came to be written. And sort of the textual witnesses and other things, including, um, so yeah, so it's, it, it appears it's in Yiddish. So it's, uh, or an old, or sort of old Judeo-German in the, you know, it sort of depends on when you, how linguists classify different things. And that it's eventually translated into Hebrew, uh, but it's by it's one of those uh, passages where someone has sort of a, a living translation. Let me see here. I have my Hoffman. Um, so, a copyist of the 1630 Hebrew edition um, says in his introduction he'd known of the story, but it was only available to those who understood Yiddish, Lashon Ashkenaz, and even then it was only printed in one in a hundred old Ashkenazi Mahzorim. Uh, so he says that he desired to make this miraculous story more available to the Jewish community beyond Ashkenaz. So he availed himself of another person who understood both Yiddish and Italian, the Shon Laaz, because his, he, Israel Cohen did not understand Yiddish. Um, so he translated it through oral Italian translation into Hebrew. So that's the, um, 
So that's part of how the sort of tradition spread, which uh, obviously once printing presses are invented and liturgies start to circulate more widely, uh, if anything, then we see uh, sort of the spread of Akhtamut Milin beyond. And I think it is possible, I think, to imagine how the folktale would have helped the, helped the poem itself spread beyond Ashkenazi. I mean, sort of, especially like why, you know, why should people who don't have any sort of connection to, um, to why do people who don't have connections to the Jews of the Rhineland sort of, why should they want this hymn that's 90 lines long and in Aramaic? Oh, but it's got this great backstory. So we'll sing it sort of in Rabbi Meir's honor in a way, so. Thank you. I'm sorry, just one more thing. Um, I just didn't understand uh, in the, the, sorry, the illumination where the, uh, the God figure was blindfolded. Um, that's, a, that's Israel. Sorry? Israel is blindfolded. Oh, it's synagogue. Sorry. Okay, yeah, as I said that, I was like, that's, that's untraditional. <laughs> but um, how is that a subversion? Like, how is it being used if it's supposed to be like different from the Christian motif? How is, how is that being reinterpreted? I didn't understand that. Yeah, oh, I mean, I love that, that image. Um, it's from the Leipzig Machsor, I think, that the image, because she's blindfolded, but she's triumphant. And in a way, sort of the blindfold makes it clear to those who are familiar with sort of the visual culture of the outside world. You know, you think, you see like synagogue, uh, you know, at every major church, you know, from the Middle Ages, you know, whether it's near Notre Dame or, um, you know, I was in Erfurt for a month uh, before COVID. And you know, and the first thing I did when I went to see the big the big church was like, oh, there's synagogue. Um, she just she kind of tired, um, but she's always sort of like tired and defeated. But you know that she sort of represents the Jews, and then you have sort of the triumphant ecclesia. And in a way, sort of the blindfold is what it takes to sort of like, I think for that artist to sort of convey this is the Jewish people. But she's crowned, also. Whereas I mean, in the conventional synagogue iconography, like she might be the crown is slipped and it's at her feet or she's holding it or it's like falling off her head or something. Yeah, but here she's like really nicely crowned and she's obviously, and she's sort of like doing some sort of like hand, um, you know, sort of like making sort of this like reaching her hand out to her lover. So I think, and she's in a way, she's elevated. So she's in a sort of position of power visually. You know, so I think it's sort of taking, it's like saying like, yes. And we see this also, there's a, you know, there are various other places where we see in medieval Ashkenazi Jewish sources where you get a sense that the Jews have absorbed sort of anti-Jewish stereotypes about themselves in various ways. So there's like the Sefer, the Sefer Nitzachon, you know, the, has a whole description about, um, it's a disturbing passage to read as a modern American Jew, but it has this whole passage about why Jews have ugly physical features. And it talks about how these sort of various features are, the, they, they are um, concealing sort of the beauty that is inside. But it's sort of like they've, they've picked up from the, you know, sort of like the larger culture that you wanna be essentially like tall and blonde and have a little nose and all these things. And they're sort of like, they're, they're sort of like saying like, yeah, we are not attractive by the general culture standards, but it's like the, it's concealing the sort of magnificent virtue that we have. And it's sort of, but it's sort of, it's like, it's like psychologically kind of complicated. Um, 
but and there's even sort of you know, questions about whether sort of like some of the strange depictions of people in some of the Haggadot and other things, whether, you know, I mean, you know, sort of how does that reflect sort of like Jewish self-image as we see in some of these. Um, and the other another sort of issue is in, you know, a question which I don't know that, you know, that it gets so complicated because a lot of the artists who illuminated manuscripts are not necessarily Jews, but they, they were sort of like, you know, working from pattern books and other things. So I think, you know, so it's, it gets, the, the interpenetration sort of Jews and Christians in Ashkenaz, I think we often picture them as being sort of like the Jews are sort of like in a ghetto locked away, but that's actually, that's a much later idea. So I think there was a lot more exchange. And I think that's why like the red Jews to me are so interesting because it's like they have the same, the same basic story in some way, only like for the Jews, it's like, all right. <laughs> or for the Christians, like who's scary? <laughs> Uh, Abigail, go ahead. Um, I was just wondering, because you mentioned the ta and like the circling back to that syllable, do you know why there are, like I've seen a, at, at least one printing where like the ta is sort of like separated out in, in another column. And like on the one hand that uh, emphasizes the rhyme scheme and on the other hand, it makes it almost impossible to like understand the words. And I was just wondering if you knew why that was a thing. Yeah, and that's, um, I think I have two different images that probably went by fairly early on, you know, where it had, they, it featured that. And there's even one where it has the groups of four, the ta is sometimes in black and sometimes in red, um, which seems to suggest sort of like the antiphonal performance. I, I think that has to do with the, the aesthetics of the poem being something um, beyond sort of the word by word content of the lines. I think that that, as soon as you start stressing, you know, you have the acrostic, um, which especially the alphabetical acrostics are really fairly easy to hear. And then the ta and every line having 10 syllables, you know, so it can be very strongly rhythmic. Um, that that sort of the experience of sort of saying this, but, you know, it's like you're sticking your landing every time you get to ta. And the point in a way is sort of like not so much the words as the experience, I think, of saying the words that that uh, manuscript tradition sort of illuminates. It also sort of, I think, helps, you know, if you think about, you know, who would have had the prayer books, you know, I think, you know, whether, um, if you're studying them, I mean, it actually sort of like just makes the poem even, in a way, sort of like more beautiful. I mean, because when you're like flipping through, you know, when you're like flipping pages online at the, you know, the National Library in Israel, you're looking through their, man their digitized manuscripts and things, you, know, you always sort of stop when there's sort of this visually arresting image. And I think this poem, it makes, you know, when they lay it out like that, you stop and you, you to look at it, it gets your, it catches your eye visually. And I think also, if you think about it as a, as sort of an aide de memoire for a, for a cantor, you know, that it also sort of stresses, it sort of, prime symptom sort of thing like, oh yes, this is the one with the sort of like the slightly elaborate performance that the manuscript itself sort of telegraphs that, you know, as part of like preparing to lead it. So, um, but yeah, I think the manuscripts, they tell us, they tell us more than, than, than initially seems to be the case. But I do think you're right. I mean, it's not, um, it doesn't facilitate sort of translation to have the final syllable of each word just out to the end. Okay, so I uh, thank you so, so, so much, uh, Dr. Lieber, for this wonderful class. It was really 
very really enjoyed it. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you to everyone who uh, joined us today here on Zoom. Thank you to everyone who joined us on, on uh, Facebook Live. Uh, tomorrow at 8 p.m. we have the third Pew Team of Shavuot class with Eats Landis, so I really hope to see you there. Uh, you can also find uh, more information about that class and many of our other classes on our website at uh, www.trisha.org classes. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Lieber, and thanks again to everyone who attended. And we really hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes at Risha, either the one tomorrow night or one in the future.